0: If you haven't been with us all summer, uh, we have been going through the Psalms, uh, different Psalms, different topics in the Psalms every single week. And this week we are going to be in Psalm 139. And so if you have a Bible, would you grab it? We're going to turn there now. Um, I do not have all the time that this Psalm deserves. We could have spent all summer probably in Psalm 139. Uh, But we are going to try our best to pull out the four main points of this psalm. Um, And just because there's only four points does not mean we're getting out of here on time or early today at all. Um, So if that was your hope, just lay it aside right now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm going to read through it one time. Uh, and you, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to just open it up in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, you can follow along on the screen. Uh, you can follow along on the YouVersion app as well if you're on that. Uh, but Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. Before we even start reading, how many of you guys, like it's just you're familiar with this Psalm it's somewhat. You know some of the verses that are ahead of us right now. You could recite them. You've maybe committed some of them to memory. Um, the prayer that I have prayed for us all week, is that we would take something that we know in our heads to be true. I don't think I'm going to teach you anything that is novel or like new to you today, but I'm hopeful that it will make the journey down into our hearts and become reality for us. There is a 12-inch journey that has to happen every single week when we open up the Word of God. And that is not just to stuff our head full of knowledge and know a lot of Christian things, but that we'd actually believe them and operate out of them in our heart. And so that's the mission for today. Psalm 139, verse 1. Oh, Lord. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind me and before me. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the outermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Holy Spirit, I do just pray that you'd come. Help us see the truth that's in the psalm today. Help us not to just learn more facts about you as we gather in church today, but help your Holy Spirit mark us and shape us. Help us know you more deeply. Jesus, we love you. and We want to glorify you in everything that we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 139. Uh, This psalm, like many psalms, or even like many songs that we sing today, actually breaks down into four parts. And so, like a lot of the songs we sing, if you notice, it's always like verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four, and they may there may be choruses that we sing in between those. There may be a bridge that we smack in the middle of those things, but usually we're singing about four different moves. Really, a lot of worship songs move with like, I've done something wrong, God, you've forgiven me, reconcile me to yourself, and Lord, heaven's coming someday. Like it just kind of moves in that way. Have you noticed that? I maybe just spoiled some worship songs for you going forward. You'll just see how they go through. David, in this psalm, moves through four huge thoughts, huge realities. And like I already said, we don't have time to give all of them justice today. But I'd like to just walk through this psalm and show us some things that are hugely important for us to grasp. So the first thing, part one of this psalm, going through the first six verses, is that God knows me. You could say that for yourself. God knows me. Notice how the first few verses, he says, Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, David is saying, you know, all the things that I do, you, you know, all of my actions, you know, all of my behaviors, you, you've discerned my thoughts from afar. He knows what's going on in your head before you even know what's going on in your head. You could, you could say out of this Psalm with quite some confidence that God knows you better than, you know, you, he, he says uh, you, 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 even before a word is on my tongue in verse four, behold, which is like this discovery, right? Lord, you know it already. You know it all together. So God already knows the dumb things that are going to fall out of your mouth that haven't even happened yet. God knows. Here's what's crazy. God knows more about you than you know about you. He knows you and there are parts of you that you can conceal to the world around you. You can conceal your actions to even those who are closest to you. You can hide and you can maneuver in a way where they don't really know everything that you're doing. You can, the thoughts that you have, nobody else has to know about the thoughts that are going through your mind. Maybe you'd confess to somebody that you've been having this thought and you're wanting to do this thing, or I've been thinking this thing, I'm stuck here. But you can conceal your thoughts from the world around you. And the words that you say, can we not say one thing to somebody to their face and then say another thing to somebody at another time? And our words can totally contradict themselves. What I'm trying to point out is that we can be deceitful or we can be shady in our dealings with even those that are most intimately close to us in our lives, but you cannot conceal anything from God. God knows you. He knows everything. He doesn't just know everything about you. He knows everything about everything, right? Yet this psalm, is not David getting lost in how God just knows so much about everything. He's getting lost in how God knows so much about him. So he's not getting lost in God's omniscience is the word. He knows all of these things. He's actually getting lost in the intimacy of God's knowledge about him personally. And that is what leads him in verse six to wonder. Remember how we talked about um, how psychologists today are noticing we have an awe deprivation in the culture we live in right now. Well, one of the ways that you can stir up awe, stir up wonder in your own heart is to marvel at how well God already knows you. But he doesn't just leave us with a knowledge about ourselves because that altogether wouldn't be helpful. It's actually pretty terrifying, isn't it? God knows everything about me. Let's throw that quote up from J.I. Packer that I've skipped first service. Y'all, it's free for you guys, second service. You don't have to pay for it at all. Living becomes an awesome business when you realize that you spend every moment of your life in the sight and company of an all-knowing, ever-present God. That's from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Fantastic book. So it's not just that God uh, knows us, though. The second verse of this psalm is starting in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? What we're going to discover in this second section is that God is not just all-knowing, but he is also with us. He's also always with us. So David starts by asking a couple questions. Where is it that I could possibly go from your spirit? Where could I run from your presence? How could I ever get away from God? And what he's going to do here is he says, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. Now remember, we think of heaven really inappropriately in our modern American uh, Christian context. We think of heaven as like you and me floating uh, as an angel. Maybe we have some wings, maybe a shiny little halo, and we're playing like a harp, right? And, and Caleb is on in the background the whole time. And if not Caleb, at least the instrumental music that is playing in Chick-fil-A all the time, right? <laughs> heaven, the, the new heavens and new earth will not be like that. It will be you and I creating, living. Uh, inhabiting this world that you and I are on, but it will be free from the pain and the sting of death and sin. Glorious. Okay. Just that, that's one side note. Okay. But when, when the Old Testament authors uh, specifically are using this word heavens, what they're referring to is the sky. Okay. The atmosphere above. So David says, if I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, or in other words, if I go down into the grave, you're there. If I take wings of the morning, where does the sun rise in the morning? In the east. That's this direction, this building for all of you directionally challenged individuals in the room. Okay. The east is over here. And then he says, and I dwell in the outermost parts of the sea. Now for Israel, the sea would be to the west. So what's David doing right now? Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I get away from you, God? If I go up there, you're there. If I go down there, you're there. If I go over there, you're there. And if I go over there, you're there. Where is God? Everywhere. God is always with you. He's omnipresent, is this word. That's the big word. If you want to learn some $5 words, I'm just trying to help out your vocabulary today, okay? You could sound smarter, you know, at your dinner tonight with your family if you want to. God is always everywhere. And you and I, I think, are frustratingly aware of our lack of agency to be anywhere that we are not. I have kids starting school this week, three of them. My youngest is a kindergartner. She'll be in kindergarten for the very first time. Very first time we're spending a full week away from her as she goes to school. You best believe as a dad, I wish I could be in that classroom this week. I will have moments realizing my lack of control, realizing my lack of agency, because I'm stuck wherever this meat bag takes me. Like I'm stuck as this bag of bones wherever you want me to go. I can't go anywhere else, but I'm gonna wish I'm in other places. How often is the human experience frustrated by our, our stuckness in this one place? Y- you remember talking to that guy who back in high school, man, he was, he was the real deal when it came to that sport that he played, you know? His mind stuck in the past a little bit. And if it wasn't for that knee injury, right, he was going all the way. You know what I'm saying? You know that guy. You've talked to that guy. You maybe are that guy. Get over it, all right? You weren't that good. Some of us are stuck in the future. We can't enjoy today because we're so frenetically... Obsessed about what might happen or this fear or this plan. Is this thing going the right way that it should go? We're, we're, we're frustrated being stuck here. I think that's why we're always on our phones. Even when we're in like a gathering with friends and family, people we care about. Yet we want to be somewhere we're not. So we're living out someone else's highlight reel. We're going, I wish I was, you know, in Mexico right now. That'd be amazing. And we're frustrated by the fact that we can't be where we're not. God doesn't know what that feels like. God is everywhere. You want, you want to know what's so baffling about God is that he, he doesn't have a future because he's already in the future. You think about that a little bit? He already knows, he knows how this whole thing is going down. The promise that God is with you is one of the greatest promises of all of scripture. It's that even though he knows you and he knows the good and he knows the bad, yet he chooses to be with you also. So God is, God is with us. God knows us. Part three, starting in verse 13. This is where we're going to spend probably the the bulk of our time. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So this is where we will turn to when we start to build out our theology of being pro-life as the people of God, right? being pro-life is not a political stance that we choose to take. It is a theology that we're convicted of. And this verse, for those of you who are curious, why are Christians so obsessed with being pro-life? Part of it is informed by this verse right here. We believe that God is intricately weaving together human beings and that life begins at conception, not at birth. The other passage that we could point to is, is uh, when Jesus is in utero in Mary, who is the first person to recognize the Messiah? It's an unborn baby leaping in his mother's womb. There, there is life that is beginning here. God is knitting together individuals, image bearers in their mother's womb. I, I, I have so many people that stop me from time to time in this church that are like, your grandma taught me what how to macrame. Is that the right word? Did I say it right? I was like, "What? What is that?" It's apparently like a kind of knitting, you know, like it's, plain, it's like it's kind of like thing where you weave some things together. And then I was like, "That's what you're saying holds all of my grandma's plants at her house that are hanging from her ceiling?" They're like, "Yes, that's macrame." I'm like, "Great. Do you know what careful thought that takes to weave things together just right? Have you watched someone knit something before? Have you watched someone crochet?" The thoughtfulness, the care of every stitch, every every line moving in a specific way. That is how God is forming together babies who are not yet born. In in Ephesians 2, it says that we are your workmanship, God. We are Christ's workmanship. That word there is, is the same word that we would translate into poetry in English. Poetry doesn't just get slapped together with random words. No, every vowel, every sound matters. And so the challenge that I always say whenever I bring up this point is church we better not just be pro life every 4 years. The next year's an election year if you haven't been paying attention. We're going to we're going to have some fun or some anxiety, maybe a little both next year, right? We'll see what's coming, who knows. We better not just be pro life in the way that we vote. We better be pro life in the way that we live. And so I should be caring about life in all forms, unborn and born, vulnerable moms. Yeah, absolutely. That's why like I love ministries like Embrace Grace who wrap around, they say, no, we're going to be pro-love for these moms who find themselves in a pregnancy and are choosing life. We're going to wrap around them with care and love and a baby shower and discipleship. We're going to show up with food and open arms and a hug. I I love organizations like Life Choices that we get to partner with. I love getting to work with Life for the Innocent that rescues kids out of trafficking, human trafficking happening in this world today. Like we cannot just be anti-abortion. We have to care about all forms of life the young and the old, the vulnerable and the safe and secure. We like being pro-life better be something that shows up in the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money and the way that we pray. It's, it's not just a political stance to take. It is a caring disposition that we have towards fellow image bearers of God. And yet what I will say is that if you reduce Psalm 139 to only being a stance to take on a political ballot sometime, you will miss the profound beauty in what it's telling you personally, that you are an image bearer of God. You are a child of God for you created my inmost being. You knit me together, God in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Having having adoption or having your sonship, your daughterhood secure in the Lord, I think that is the very base building block that all of Christianity is going to be built on. Otherwise, if you don't start there with your adoption into God's family, his loving, caring kindness for you as a son, as a daughter, if you don't start there, I don't care what kind of theological house you build yourself, it will be janky. Uh, So 2020 happened, right? And uh, like a lot of you, um, decided to do some home renovation projects. Anybody else? Like 17 trips a day to Home Depot during that time? Yeah. I saw some of you there actually. Um, <laughs> Katie and I decided we were going to refinish our basement during that time. And, um, my dad is a plumber, which just means he's like handier than me at all sorts of handy stuff. Right. Uh, so we, we framed our basement out. Uh, it was already kind of roughed in where there was going to be a bathroom down there. And, uh, this is a true story. I was learning how to use the big framing nail gun, right? My dad was holding something. He's like, hold it like this, shoot it like that, do it like that. I literally shot a nail right in between his two fingers right here. Uh, not all the way, but like oh, enough of the way. You know what I'm saying? He just ripped it out and he just kept working. My dad's like, he's a hero. It was totally one of those moments where I was like, my dad could totally beat up your dad, you know? Um, he's awesome. So we're building this basement. We frame it all out, right? You know, my dad recovers from his wounds and his scars. And, we get to the bathroom and you know, like when you're in a bathroom or in a place that's going to have like a lot of water, you can't just use regular drywall, regular sheetrock. You have to use like a green board or we used concrete board down in the basement, okay? So we're putting up the concrete board and lo and behold, you know what we found out? The framers, dang framers didn't frame this bathroom in squarely. The walls were kind of crooked. <laughs> Only problem was who were the framers? Yeah. And me, right? <laughs> yeah, it was my fault. So we get, you know, we get it cleaned up best we can. And then, and then you got to put tile on, on top of that. And I, like, I hate doing tile. I hate it. And, and even though we got that concrete board figured out on there, you know what happened with all the tile, right? Like it, it was all sorts of crooked. There's grout. That's like, you know, I got grout. That's like, got to be like an inch thick behind some of those tiles just to make some of the bends in the wall. I'm exaggerating a little to make a point. But you come see the tile. It is not straight. I'll promise you that. And I am aware painfully of where every single one of those flaws are, which is why I just don't think I'm going to do this kind of work on my own anymore. (laughs) This is a total side point, but there you go. Here's here's why I'm saying this whole story to you. Is if the framing and the foundation's wrong, it doesn't matter what you build on and it's not going to look right. And I get so tired of a version of Christianity that just wants to argue about different theological points. Women in ministry, the the gifts for today. These, should we do these songs or these songs? I get it and doctrine matters. I want to drill all that stuff down. But if you want to just have endless conversations around theology without actually inwardly going in and asking yourself, do I operate like I'm a child of God? I just lose a lot of interest in those conversations because so much of what you believe and how you behave reduces down to who you think you really are. And if you don't start with the bedrock of adoption, It doesn't really matter what else is put on that house. It's not going to lean the right way. What kind of lie are you believing today that you would not believe any longer if you actually operated like a child of God? What kind of accusation is the enemy consistently whispering into your ear that you'd be able to go, that doesn't stick anymore. I'm not going to, I'm not going to let that weigh me down because I'm a child of the king. You see my dad, my dad could beat up your dad. Why are you even talking to me right now? Right? Right? What kind of swag would you have on the playground if you just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loved you like a father loves a child and a good father? I'm sorry if you didn't have a good father, but God is a perfect, loving father. What kind of behavior are you caught up in right now that you would totally reject and renounce participating in if you knew that God was your dad and you trusted him as a loving father? What is it? Like there are so many different pockets of our life that fail to fall onto that fundamental part of who we are, children of God. And this verse helps us so much. God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together, my, like you had a plan for my life. He, he put me together on purpose for today. Do you believe that about yourself? Someone spoke over you one time, you were an accident maybe. There are no accidents in God's kingdom. He, he put you together. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of the days that were formed for me as when as yet there were none of them. God numbered, he planned every single one of my days. You know what that helps me with? It helps me not just with the building block of adoption, but it helps me now to the building block that all of us need to get to someday is like, God, why am I here? Cool that you made me, but why am I here? What's my purpose in this life? Every single person's purpose in this life is to glorify God in heaven while you enjoy him as your father, by the way. That's every single person's purpose. I think there is so much frustration and anxiousness and just general, um, you can call it depression, you can call it anxiety, you can call it whatever you want. I think so much of that exists today because we fail to realize why we're actually here. Like I, I became the pastor of this church in 2020 and that was not by accident. God made sure that I was born to this family, raised up the road, meeting this girl who went to Mountain View High School. That girl would bring me to this church. This church would then grow me, disciple me. I'd be participating in it. And lo and behold, when 2020 hit and all the craziness was happening, God already had a guy already ready to go. And he didn't know everything that he was doing, but he kept clinging on to Jesus who was somehow giving him some instructions on how we were gonna go forward. That's it. And God doesn't just have a plan for me. He's got a plan for you. He has a plan for your life. And I don't care what age or stage or season of life you're in. He's got a plan for you. You're like, Austin, awesome, I'm a business owner. Well, be a business owner whose business glorifies God. You have a circle of influence over the people that work for you, the people that work under you. You can reflect God's, uh, God, like God qualities down to them in your workplace. I'm retired. I don't work anymore. Praise God. You have all sorts of time to just pour out into whatever it is that God's calling you to do. You're like, Austin, awesome, I have no time. Will you have time that you're spending somewhere? How are you using it for God's kingdom? Notice how David in the Psalm, he's like, teach me to number my days. And that's not some heavy-handed warning, but it's an invitation to be intentional about how we live our lives. I'm a student this year. Nobody listens to me. Yet people do listen to you. People are watching you. Every single person in this room has influence somewhere. Influence where people are looking to you, they're gleaning things from you, they're watching you, even if you're not aware of it. Are you being intentional with your space, with your time, with your sphere of influence to lead people towards Jesus? Or are you letting things distract even their clarity of who Jesus looks like through you? When, when, when you hear about people who receive like a terminal diagnosis, they'll talk about how I, I just go into like doing math. I have two years to live. You just start realizing like, okay, I'm gonna miss this and I'm gonna miss that. and I don't miss that. And because the days are all of a sudden numbered, you now start living with this different kind of intentionality and approach to every single day. That's what you'll hear from people who have a terminal diagnosis. And, and I do wonder what that would be like if you're on your Apple Watch tomorrow just popped up like, you know, 4,892. I well, guess weird. The next day it was like 4,891, 890, 89, 88. Do you think your days would start to play out a little differently if you actually had your days numbered? I guarantee we'd be more intentional with our time. Here's the reality. Every single person in this room has that clock ticking in some sort of form or fashion. And I've done way too many funerals to know that clock expires a lot quicker than most people want it to. God, teach me to number my days, not in a way that incites fear in me, but in a way that causes me to live out with a sense of direction and purpose. I don't care if you're a plumber. I don't care if you're a student. I don't care if you're, whatever it is that you're doing, you are placed by God in a place to make an impact there for the kingdom of God. We drove up to Montana earlier this summer. Part of me was like, I get it. I get like, let's, I, I, was, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure part of our conversation on that road trip, because it took like 13 years to get there, but <laughs> it was like, it was like, how do we convince all the church to move here? Because if we could, I would go, you know, not as many of you are with me as I, what I was hoping for. That was kind of a test. We're not going to do it. No, but there's some conviction that comes with that because I think so often we're wishing we're somewhere that we're not. You know what? God, doesn't, God didn't call Good Shepherd to be in Montana. God called us to be right here, right now in the city of Loveland, making a difference here for Thompson School District, for the neighboring cities around us. God placed us. You. God chose you to be alive in 2023. And that's an amazing thing. And don't miss the purpose that's attached to that statement. You're a child of his. He knows you. He's with you. He created you for today. And so live it out. Live it out for the glory of God. The fourth thing that we'll see is in verse 19, is that God judges rightly. How many of you, just honest moment in church, were reading through the Psalm, the first 18 verses, you were kind of tracking with David. You're like, this feels good. All right, God loves me. He's with me. He's for me. He has a plan for me. He's, he, he created me. You can see all that. And then all of a sudden, when we got to verse 19, you're like, what the right turn just happened here, David? Right? Verse 19, where it's like, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Like how many of you, honestly, like that was like, you're like, that was an abrupt, different direction that I thought we were heading. It is for me. Even still reading it in front of all of you. I'm like, oh my gosh, David, this is, this is tough, dude. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Don't I hate those who hate you, oh Lord? Don't I loathe those who rise up against you? Uh, Verse 22, I hate them with complete hatred. That's strong. I count them as my enemies. This is what we're reading is like classified as an imprecatory psalm where where you're praying literally against your enemies. They'll show up in several different places in the psalms. What do we make of those psalms? Here's, Here's the best that I can reduce it down for you simply in the amount of time that we have. When you're reading through an imprecatory Psalm, the, the thing that you should remember is that God does have real enemies who are opposed to him. And, and I know we, we love the saying, love the sinner and hate the sin, but sometimes the Psalmist will teach us how to actually pray against the sinful people doing sinful things in this world. It's the only place that I really have to go when I'm, when I'm hearing about like what Life of the is doing and how they're rescuing kids by the thousands out of sex trafficking. And some of the stories that are coming out of it, and it's just horrific. And you can't even almost sit there and just listen to what's happening to these poor children. And it's like, I, I listen to it and I go, God, I, I know you're good, but, but why weren't you good right then? Where was your goodness here? Why weren't you good faster? You saved this kid, but not before this thing happened to them. And I would say, if you're just not having that kind of heart-to-heart honesty with God, then you're actually, you're probably just turning a blind eye to the evil that exists in this world. Because there are some dark, heinous, hurtful, ugly things happening in this world. And at some point as believers, we have to realize that my agency is limited. I'm not going to be the person that goes over there and makes a difference with this bad leader or this bad uh, way of thinking that exists in this part of the world. And I can't impact it. And so what do I pray? God, would your justice be done? I mean, you think about life of the innocent. Would your justice be done on behalf of these kids? Oh, that you would slay the wicked who keep doing things like this. That's one way to reconcile the imprecatory Psalms. The other way, I think, is, is you remember, like Psalm 119 says, the sum of God's word is truth, not sum as in a part, the sum, the total of God's word is truth. And so we have to hold this truth in line with the other truth that Jesus teaches us, to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us. Jesus teaches us that as well. And so when we do have opportunity to recognize that we disagree or that we think someone's an enemy. We think they're doing something wrong. And maybe they're even close enough that we can make a difference in our life. We have to understand, how do I love this person the way that Jesus would love them? And that's a, that's a tough space to live in as a Christian, isn't it? Because Jesus, Jesus was Jesus at this. He was perfect. You and I will not be. Part of the way that helps me interact with people who completely don't believe what I believe They they think in a different way. They act in a different way. And I think sometimes even their view of the world or what they're doing in a way, it is harmful to what's happening in front of us. What I have to remember is Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six says, our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, right? Ephesians six, right before the armor of God, we're all familiar with the armor of God. But right before that, it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to take a stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have one enemy church and it's Satan. And he is at work in this world. He is living and active. He is, he is harming. He is lying. He is accusing and he is robbing life from people. And so when we, pray, when we come across a Psalm like this, we should first and foremost remember the enemy that all of us have in common, the devil. I don't care if you don't vote like that person, you don't think like that person, you don't like that person. Keep in mind, that person and you are both image bearers of God. Jesus created both of you. Jesus is with both of you. Jesus knows both of you. Keep that in mind before you start lobbying these accusations at people let's make sure we're attacking first and foremost, the enemy that we all have in common, the devil. And he has schemes and he has plans and there are principalities and there are strongholds. And I know we don't like to believe that because we live in this really developed, educated world where we think the scientific method just proves everything. And yet this verse just shows us that there are cosmic forces at play. And so pray. Are you a person of prayer? Like, man, if we believe that we're a child of God, if we believe that he's with us, why would we not be talking to him? Let's be people of prayer that are going to war for for the least of these, the most vulnerable. Let's make sure that's showing up in the way that we live out our daily life. Let's make sure that we're worshiping. You know what the devil hates is when all of us stand together and sing on a Sunday morning. Let's make sure we're singing. Let's making sure that we're warring against in the heavenly battles that are going on right now. Let's make sure we're joining up with the right side as we sing and declare truths about who God is and what he will do. Amen? If you have communion, go ahead and grab your communion cups if they're with you. Even as David ends this psalm, turning his attention towards his enemies, this is something we talk about almost all the time here before we're going to go and turn our focus and our attention towards the mistakes that are out in this world, where should we, where should we start before we do that in our hearts, in ourselves? And this is how David ends the Psalm. He says, God, verse 23, search me, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous weight in me. And then he says, and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. When we start to read about God's justice, I hope that each of us are at least somewhat aware that we are on the gracious end of God's justice. We have graciously received his mercy. We've graciously received the righteousness from Jesus. That was not something you and I did or earned. That was something that God gave to us. And we accepted it and we followed after it. That was a gift from the Lord. And so if we're talking about God's justice being done properly, we have to acknowledge that, no, God, search me. You, you, you know what's going on in here. I'm not producing good fruit perfectly all the time, are you? Like, as soon as I read this verse, I immediately start to get, what's that word? Conviction. You didn't do this right in that meeting. You didn't do this right with your kids. You could have, you could have been more patient here. You weren't loving there. You weren't, right? Search me, God. Know my heart. And as soon as I start to do that, I'm aware of the justice differential that exists between what Jesus could have done to me and what he has done to me. And that's what communion really is all about, isn't it? It's coming in here today, recognizing that what John 10 says, flip over there if you have it in your Bible. I should have marked it. Here, hold on one sec. The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. It's just like David's prayer that, God, would you lead me in the way everlasting? Jesus says, "I I have come that you'd have life abundantly to the full, to the max. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd who knows you, who's with you, who created you, who is justice embodied, lays down his life so that justice still happens for our sin. It's just all poured out on the shoulders of Jesus Christ on Calvary's hill. Where he, he, in his perfection, took the judgment that you and I deserved so that we wouldn't have to, so we could stand in righteousness and call God our friend. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. It goes on to say, I'm the good shepherd in verse 14. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. What is one of the marks of being one of the sheep that fall after Jesus is you know what his voice sounds like. You know He knows you and you start to build out this relationship where you know him and you trust him and you let him correct you. And he leads you along and he encourages you and he shows you how this is all your grace. And so he helps you then extend that grace and that forgiveness to other people around you. Even while we, we may from time to time go, God, where is your justice here? Would it just be a little more evident? Would, would, I, would I just trust and hope that vengeance is mine declares the Lord and that he's gonna do whatever he's gonna do because he's God and praise God, I'm not. I'm not. And so as we come to communion today, here's the invitation is just to sit for just a moment And to ask that this truth from today would just make that 12-inch journey that's so difficult for so many of us who have been in church a long time. That you know these things. You know he made you. You know he's with you. You know you belong to him. But is that really what operates first and foremost in your heart? That's the question to explore as we receive communion. God, would you help us see with the eyes of our heart how much you care for us, how much you love us, how specifically and intentionally you made us. You designed us to be in a sort of way, God, so that we would represent you well in the world that we're living in, so that we would fall in love with you, so that we would share the good news of what you've done. God, it says in Psalm 139 that your thoughts of us outnumber the sand, which is just a mind-blowing thing to wrestle with that you care so much for your children, that you're thinking about us always. God, I pray that that would mark us as we walk out of this room today, that we would operate with the posture of beloved child of the King. Would that be who we are as we leave this place? Forgiven, chosen, adopted, loved, clean. In Jesus' name, amen.